Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And in this episode, I'll be looking at Willa Cather's novel, Old Pioneers, or at least the first half of it or so. It's, it's a little bit less than 100 pages, but, you know, I, I in my previous episode, I looked at the, the Troll Gardens. That was a little more than 100 pages, so it's just kind of evening out, so... Um, but I'll, I'll look at Old Pioneers over two episodes. Here I'll just look at the first two parts. Uh, Willa Cather divides up Old Pioneers into five parts, uh, some of which are really just chapters um, more than parts. One is actually just ten pages or so. But anyway, it's broke up into five parts. And I'll just look at the first two parts, talk about the novel in general, talk about some of its themes and its characters and, and, and kind of what this novel is about. Um, so this is Cather's second novel I, I have the library of america did not include her first novel in at least the collection i have i have um two of the volumes they published three um, i have her early novels and stories and then the one of her later novels so i don't know if in the other volume which was published a little bit later if they included alexander's bridge but um that was first published in, in 1912 um, but o pioneers was published in 1913 one year later and this is sometimes seen as the first novel of or, or it's sometimes seen as part of her Great Plains trilogy, or I think the Great Plains trilogy is kind of an informal trilogy. It's I don't know if she conceived of, of that way in the way like maybe like Frank Norris had the idea of the Epic of Wheat. Uh, of course, he never finished that because he died. But um, Will Cather did write three novels about life in in the Great Plains and in the Prairie. Uh, and those three novels are O Pioneers, The Song of the Lark, and My Antonia. And they're all published in a five-year period. Uh, so, but today I'll just look at the Old Pioneers. Um, Old Pioneers is an incredibly short novel. It can really be read basically in, in one sitting or maybe a couple sittings, depending on how fast you want to read. It's a very tight and contained story. It, it really surrounds one woman um, and some of the people around her. Basically, the main characters are this woman, Alexandra Berkson, her brother, Emil Berkson, and a neighbor, Carl who ends up marrying Alexandra. That, that's basically the story. It's it's just kind of a vignette, a slice of life. Uh, there's no really grand pro plot. The The central event of the novel is is the murder of Emile and, and Alexandra's response to that. But even without that, the novel really deals with what it's like to be in, what it's like to have grown up in Nebraska, what's it like to try to make a living in Nebraska in the early years of, of of white settlement in that region you know the ups and downs of life the tensions families families face the pressures they face the challenges they they endured as they tried to make a living in 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 the frontier so it's kind of a short novel it's a short novel it doesn't really stand out it's it's not like the massive kind of epic that the song of the lark is and that we'll look at in the next in, in future episodes it's 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 small and contained but it's a really nice story and i i really liked it it's it's it really you know i talked in my last episode of my struggles in reading the troll gardens and how i was expecting to get into like great plains literature and what i got in song of the or in the troll gardens was a lot about kind of the coasts a lot about artistic life and of course that's something that Catherine's very interested in but when she starts writing about the Great Plains you really can tell that she's come to her own 
voice. And I, I really like O Pioneers. Actually, it's it's a novel that's really sharp. I I love the way it looks at the, the pressures in the family, the conflicts within the family. Um, and it, it's very true to life. I, there's one character that might be a bit of a caricature, but overall, I, I think it's it's rather believable and um, and and touching, actually. Um, so I guess that's my introduction. I recommend uh, O Pioneers. So, Old Pioneers has been adapted into kind of a Hallmark movie, kind of a made-for-TV made-for-TV movie. You know, I haven't watched many of those Hallmark movies. They seem marketed mostly to to women, um, which is unfortunate. I think this novel is not, like, really just for women. I mean, the main character is a woman, but um, the story, I think, is quite universal. And um, it's really an, a very, very powerful look at the American frontier. But I did watch the tra- I didn't watch the movie, though. I watched the trailer to the O Pioneers film, and it seemed fairly honest um, interpretation. It, it didn't seem to, to change much. So it seems the plot you get in the book is what you're going to get in that, that movie. So check it out. If anyone did see that and, and has comments, let me know. I, I believe it's just someone put it on YouTube and it hasn't been flagged for copyright violations. So, you know, you just can go watch it there, I think. Um, so I guess I'll just go in and start talking about the plot. plot. I'll, I want to talk about the first two parts of it. Um, part one is called the Wildland, and part two is called Neighboring Fields. And this covers basically a, a three-year period of time or so, dealing with uh, starting from um, Alexander begins the novel. Our main character, Alexander, begins the novel as like a teenager. And it's about the period of time in which she really comes to her own as a as a leader of this homestead that she's inherited from her father uh the story begins in in wildlands uh wildlands the first part is divided up into five short chapters but there's no reason to really go through chapter by chapter here i think because a lot of them are quite short so i'll just talk in general um it begins in the winter time and we see alexandra take control of a crisis situation very early on her younger brother emile was playing with his cat and the cat gets caught up in a pole and can't get down and he's crying and and trying to get help and while this is happening we get all these slices of life of 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 life in the small town in the in nebraska in this frontier area and i forget why alexandra and them are in town but some business and you see like the different communities you see that you got the swedes and the bohemians those seem to be the major major groups here in nebraska and they're sitting there drinking and drinking to stay warm and and basically chit-chatting and 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 that you have the life of 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 a small prairie town and alexandra's doing her business and then she has to come and take control and save emile and this i think is something that's going to be paralleled later in the story when she fails to to help emile with uh the major crisis in his life there um, so this is our introduction to the Burkson family. So we immediately see Alexandra as as a dominant figure in the family, even though she's a young young woman. So in addition to giving us this feeling for Alexandra's place in the family, we get the feeling of kind of the, the frontier town and um, a lot of nice little vignettes here. Um, for instance, watching the Bohemians drink in the in the winter time to deal with their cold is, is interesting uh quote the the farm people were making preparations to start for home the women were checking over their groceries and pinning their big red shawls over their head the men were buying tobacco and candy with what money they had left were showing each other new boots and gloves and blue flannel shirts three big bohemians were drinking raw alcohol 
tinctured with oil of cinnamon. It was said to fortify one effectively against the cold, and they smacked their lips after each pull of the flask. They vol their volubility drowned out each other's noise in the place, and the overheated store sound of their spirited languages that reeked of pipe smoke, damp woolens, and kerosene. And later on, we get a broader panoramic of of the town quote the little town behind them had vanished as if it had never had been the fallen that had fallen behind the swell of the prairie and the stern frozen country received them into their bosoms the homesteads were few and far apart here and there a windmill gaunt against the sky a sod house crouching in the hollow by the great fact was but the great fact was the land itself which seemed to overwhelm the little beginnings of human society that struggled in somber wastes it was from facing this harsh, fast harshness that the boy's mouth had become so bitter because he felt that the men were too, were too weak to make any mark here, that the land wanted to be left alone to preserve its own fierce strength, its peculiar savage kind of beauty, its uninterrupted mournfulness. And that's certainly a, a major theme of, of the book, it seems to me. Um, now, what we learn here in the first section as well is that the Bergson family is in great crisis because of, of their father's illness. So... Pretty soon, they're going to be left without, without a father. Um, we also meet Emile has a childhood friend named um, Maria, or Marie, and she's going to be an important figure uh, throughout Emile's, Emile's tragic life. So they come back, and, and we're introduced to John Bergson, um, the Bergson's patriarch, and he's dying, of course. And his past is a little bit suspicious. Uh, well, he's not suspicious. He's a good man. Uh, but his father, so the, the children's grandfather, was a bit of a con artist. And he had he's basically been running like a shipping company and been, um, you know, basically stealing from the sailors and, and you know, doing different shenanigans to make his money. And, and by coming to America, John Bergson hoped to, to kind of remake his legacy, even hopes to make money to to send it back but he never was able to and you know his life is is a bit tragic because not only does he die young but you know he spends most of his life since coming to america in debt you know just trying to make this homestead work and then he just gets out of debt and he's struck by one of some kind of disease some kind of cancer or something and, he, and he's going to die um and the, the the connection between life of debt and and living on the frontier being a farmer at this time of american history is is really sharp here and if you study in american history you'd probably know about the populist movement and how they responded to the debt crisis of of agrarian america in the late 19th early 20th century that's you know that's part of life here is just you know these these weren't people farming for themselves they were farming for the market and they were farming you know, they had to invest in machinery and invest in land and in help and seeds and tools and all that meant perpetual debt. These aren't self-sufficient homesteads anymore. Um, and so that debt is just part of the life of, of being a frontiers um, settler at the time. Now, what we get in in this in part one of the pioneers is the de is the deathbed scene. Right. So John Bergson's dying and he calls the whole family together to give the final instructions. And this, I know this was something Americans did a lot. And if you read um, that really wonderful book uh, about death in the Civil War, I forget the name of it, but it was by, um, f um, f is her name Faust? Drew Gilpon Faust, I think her name is. Um, and she wrote that wonderful book about death in the Civil War. And she talks about how, you know, there was, it was how important it was for fathers patriarchs to kind of give their orders to the family on their deathbed and of course in the civil war you couldn't do that so soldiers before battle would write this out in, on letters and then send the letters out which would have the same kind of effect of being this deathbed scene 
So everyone's surrounding him as he's about to kick off, and he gives his various orders. And the orders really come down to this. They come down to, one, keep the land intact, at least until marriage, and then, you know, each son will get, each person will get a chunk of the land when they marry, but the land has to be kept intact and kept in the family. So don't sell the farm, is basically the first order. And the second is that, that, that Alexandra will be in charge. And she's the oldest kid. And she's the one who worked most closely with John Berkson in the later years. And so she knows the plans and she knows how the farms work. She knows the finances. So she's to be in charge. And Alexandra then is, is made into the kind of the inadvertent in-charge woman that Cather dealt, dealt with in various characters in the Troll Garden. Um, and it's I think it's interesting. I think she's very fascinated by this type of character. Uh, and this may be so far as much as I read of. I haven't read all of Cather's work yet, but I'm working on it. But, you know, this is one of the better examples of this woman who, you know, very capable, very effective, ends up in charge of a farm, but then has to be kind of this no-nonsense person, has to sacrifice her personal life for the interests of, of the farm or the family. And we've seen that before in the short story, uh, The Garden Lodge, most, um, most recently. So that, and he also says that my wife has to be left to keep her garden. So that's what he kind of gives to his wife. But he passes leadership of the farm to to his daughter, Alexandra. Now, sometime later, he dies off screen. So the scene ends and the deathbed scene's over. But he, he dies sometime later. And then we pick up after John Bergson's death. And the family, the children, are on their way to buy a hammock from a, kind of a man who lives out kind of on his own, kind of a weird, eccentric, uh, kind of the frontier mystic character we saw in Steinbeck and a little bit in Norris. I remember when we go back to that, we, those writers, they had this idea of like these people with a mystical, spiritual connection to the land. This guy they're going to meet is kind of Willa Cather's example of that. And his name's Ivor. And he kind of, he actually lives in a cave. He has a homestead, but he lives in a cave and the homestead's very undeveloped. He kind of lives off the land. He has a true frontier character he doesn't speak english he his only book is like the swedish bible but he doesn't really refer to it that much he seems to get his spirituality from nature and directly from god and we should look at how cather characterizes ivor uh, quote ivor found contentment in the solitude he had sought out for himself he disliked the litter of human dwellings the broken food the broken bits of broken china the old wash boilers and key tea kettles thrown into the sunflower patch he preferred the cleanness and tidiness of the wild sod he always said that the Badgers had cleaner homes and people. And then when he took a housekeeper, her name would be Mrs. Badger. He best expressed his preference for his true wild homestead by saying that the Bible seemed truer to him there. If one stood in the doorway of his cave and looked off into the rough land, the smiling sky, the curly grass, white in the hot sunlight. If one listened to his ram ramturous song of the lark, the drumming of the quail, the burr of the locust, and that vast silence, one understood what Ivor meant. Now, it seems they're going there to buy this hammock, and I don't know why they have to go to Ivor to buy the hammock, but Alexander's also getting advice from Ivor. So specifically, she's getting advice on him on raising hogs, I think. So Ivor is a resource of knowledge, too, even though he's kind of seen as a crazy mystic type on, on the frontier. Alexander notices his value. Oh, oh, by the way, I should talk about the, um, the family here. Um, so... Basically, the main characters in this story, let's start with the Berkson family. John's dead. We have his wife who's kind of in the backdrop. She's, she doesn't do much. So the, the two brothers, the three brothers are Oscar and Lou, and they're the older brothers. And they're the most kind of 
interested in the, the success of the farm and they have their own kind of families by the midpoint in the novel and, and they're more the ones who are going to fight with Alexandra over keeping the farm intact or, or whatever. Then we have Alexandra, of course, and then we have Emil, the youngest brother, who is kind of doing his own thing. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what that is, you know, as we go on through this novel. Now, outside of the family, three characters are most important, and that is Marie. And then later on, she's going to marry a man named Frank. But um, Frank's important because of his relationship to Marie. Um, then we have Carl, who is Alexandra's old friend, um, who comes and goes. And eventually she's he's kind of the romantic interest of Alexandra. And Alexandra has to make the choice, basically, commitment to the farm and the family or commitment to her heart. And then we have Ivor is the other, yeah, I guess, major character of the novel. And there's other kind of minor ones, but th those are the big ones you need to keep track of. So after this meeting with Ivor, three years pass. And... Times have been hard on the place, this region. It's called the Divide. I guess it's a part of, part of Nebraska where these homesteads are. And times are very, very difficult. And we start to think, uh, we see families starting to sell out and, buy, and sell their land and, and go to the city and give up on the, the prairie. And even the older, older boys, Oscar and Lou, start to talk more openly about selling their selling their products or selling their, their chunk of the land by being bought out by Alexandra and then going to Chicago. And some just say we should just sell the whole homestead. It's Alexandra then who remains committed to her promise to her father to, to keep the land intact. And then as, as part one ends, so Alexandra's a little bit older now. I think she's like 21, 22 maybe. That's three years since her father died. And she sits down with her brothers and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Everyone's selling out right now. It, times are hard. So what we're going to do is we're going to mortgage the farm. And this horrifies the men first, the, the brothers, because first, the father, their father works so hard to get out of debt. And this, so they can't believe that she'd be willing to mortgage the farm again. And also, they're like, no, we got to get out. Like, there's no future here. And she says, no, we're going to mortgage the farm and then buy up these our neighbors land as they as they sell the land so we're going to increase the size of the homestead and make it into really a commercial farm and she says this is what we're going to do she kind of asserts her authority over the family at that point and she commits to this plan of basically using debt to expand the size of the farm and this is a gambit that's going to work out and we learn about that immediately in the beginning of part two which is set 16 years later so I think I said earlier, the first two parts cover three years. No, that's only the first first part that covers the three-year period of time. Um, part two, Neighboring Fields, jumps ahead 16 years. So now Alexandra's, um, you know, whatever, mid-30s or something. So she's much older now. And uh, the, everyone's older. Everyone's adults. And the farm's doing great. All right, so with that, let's just jump into to part two. It's said 13 years later. Um, times have improved. The Berksons have benefited from the overall improving of economic fortunes on the frontier and, and the expansions of, of all the land they bought. So essentially now they're basically running a commercial farm where they have to hire a lot of workers and things. It's, it's bigger than what the, the small family can, can work themselves. And the family's still together. Emil had gone off to college um, to, I think, to Lincoln or, I mean, it's nearby. Um, but she, she returned from college, too. So the whole family is together at this point in the story. And Marie and Emile speak, and they get to kind of reconnect a little bit. 
Um, but Maria, by this point, has married, and she's married to a man named Frank Shabata, one of the neighbors of of the, you know, of the Bergsons. Um, Ivor arrives, and so he's kind of part of the reunion, reuniting of all these characters. He arrives, and he actually needs help from Alexandra. Al- Alexandra's becoming a very important person locally, like politically. She has power. She has money. You know, people respect her. And Ivor needs help. Essentially, Ivor's neighbors have are about ready to commit him into the nut house or something because they they just see him as, you know, bizarre and getting weirder. And, you know, they don't want anything really to do with him. And they think he's kind of dangerous. And so Ivor's asking if you can, you know, basically help me and protect me and all that. Because he's weird, but he's got his own way of living. Right. And, you know, he's not a threat to anyone, essentially. And Alexandra knows that. And she is prepared to 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 help him. And it's just at this point that Carl arrives and, and Carl. So Carl's coming back too, and that's Alexandra's boyhood friend. And he's he's spent time in Chicago and now he's coming back through Nebraska. But he's on his way to Alaska and he's become an engraver. Um, Alexandra remembered him like as a painter, as an artist. And he explains to her, no, no, I'm an engraver now. You know, there's a difference between different kind of artists. But Alexandra's a little bit more simple and she just sees people's artists, and assumes they can do anything. Um, but... Uh, Carl, Carl's an interesting character because he's the one who's allowing us to really have this contrast between the city and and the rural and, you know, what urban life is like compared to what the countryside life is like. You have characters like Lou and and Oscar who want to move to Chicago, but for them, Chicago's like a, a distant um, thing. And, of course, Emil's been in Lincoln, I guess, so he's sort of been in the city. But the virtues and, and sufferings of the city are something that really we can get via via Carl. And here's how he, does, he explains it. He starts out by explaining that his life has been a failure. And says, Alexander pushed her hair back from her brow, brow with a puzzled, thoughtful gesture. You see, he went on calmly. Measured by your standards here, I'm a failure. I couldn't even buy one of your cornfields. I've enjoyed a great many things, but I have nothing to show for it all. But you show it for it yourself, Carl. I'd rather have all the freedom than my land. Carl shook his head mournfully. Freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. Here you are an individual. You have a background of your own. You'd be missed, but off in the city there are thousands of rolling stones like me. We're all alike. We have no ties. We know nobody. We own nothing. When one of us dies, they scarcely know where to bury him. Our landlady and the delicatessen man are our mourners, and we leave behind nothing but a frock coat and a fiddle or easel or a typewriter or what, ever tool we got our living by. All we've ever managed to do is pay our rent, the exorbitant rent that one has to pay for a few square feet of space near the heart of things. We have no house, no place, no people of our own. We live in the streets and the parks and the theaters. We sit in restaurants and concert halls and look about at the hundreds of our own kind and shudder, end quote. So, you know, I don't know if this is Cather's view, but it, it's something I'm sympathetic to. I, I don't like the city, as I said before in this podcast. I'm sympathetic to this idea of going to the countryside. Um, so there it is. Um, that's how Carl sees his life at this point, though. Um, we learned a little bit more also about the background of Maria, why she chose to marry. Um, but it's pretty clear by this point that, that Emil and Marie are rekindling their friendship and even developing a romance of sorts. And it's, of course, it's illicit. Uh, Marie, by this point, is married. And so she has to be a little bit standoffish. But, you know, it's it's clear that 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 plot is going somewhere. Right. Um, Emil meets also an old friend who I don't think showed up in part one, but he shows up here. He's, his name's Amadi. He, he's a French uh, immigrant. And I should say that this this 
area of Nebraska is presented as fairly multicultural. I think it's one of the nice aspects of it. And they go to kind of like a fair, uh, a carnival thing. And he's encouraging him, Emil, to get married or to get a girl at least. And he talks about kind of the pleasures of the flesh quite a lot. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rather uh, enjoyable uh, character. Amadid is, is a lot of fun. I think the few times we get to meet him, we don't see much of him. I think basically in two scenes, but the times we see him, he's a, he's a fun character, and he's he's this kind of when we first meet him here, he's he's kind of this committed bachelor who wants to seek out pleasure in life, and when we meet him a little bit later in the story, he's he's like married with kids and stuff and a family man. So if you ever met that kind of character in life, um, you know you'll you'll be familiar with with Amity. Now, but the heart of what's going on in this chapter, Neighboring Fields, is growing tension within the Berkson family over, over land and over the future of the farm, especially as the older brothers are getting a little bit older and beginning to think more and more about where they will go in, in the future. They're, they're both married by this point. They both have uh, kind of a financial and investment of labor in this land. And they, they think they deserve their share and they, they want to begin to break up the farm. And especially the homestead has expanded so much. And then the debate becomes, you know, well, should we get equal shares? And Alexandra's opinion is essentially no, that it was my effort, my plan that expanded the size of the homestead. You can have your original share, maybe, but you can't have the share that your father promised. But you can't have an equal share of everything that's been gained since then. And that's going to be the main tension over land that's in the subtext of of the novel and here alexandra comes off as her most hard-headed her most um brutal and um you know direct most business and businesswoman like um now this is partially what she's just fulfilling her father's dreams and it's a it's a role that she gets put into she becomes the caretaker of of the land of the farm of the homestead and she really believes in that and she's committed to it and this is what's going to get in the way of her own heartfelt interest in, in a man like Carl. Now, the gendered argument to be to be made here, and I don't know if this is this is not an overtly feminist text. There are, I think, feminist sub subtext to it, um, but I think on the surface, it's not it's not trying to be like a a, a feminist book. Um, but we do see here the brothers devaluing Ale Alexandra's contributions to the farm and, and valuing only kind of the physical labor. And so the idea here is like, we did the labor. We built this farm. And actually, it was Alexandra's plan and Alexandra's kind of forward thinkingness that let them become as successful as they are. So it's essentially the men devaluing the intellectual over the physical. And, and by doing that, devaluing the hard works and sacrifices and efforts of, of their older sister. Um, now, not much else happens um, at the end of part two. It's basically like a family gathering. There's a period of time when the whole family's together. And as the section ends, people go off. Well, Emil decides to go to Mexico. And the reason he goes to Mexico is he really can't handle being around Marie, who he's falling in love with and who's married and who he can't have. So he decides to go off to Mexico and become a wanderer. Um, and there's a really wonderful scene where he's talking to Marie about, you know, where his future is and you know he's kind of working on the farm at the time and you know he's saying like here's my you know here's where i am and marie kind of teases him on you know maybe you could do other things and i don't know if it's kind of teasing him about the, their potential together but anyways emil gives up and and essentially flees to to mexico to get away from this woman he's fallen in love with 
it's clearly due to Marie that he does that. And Carl, on the other hand, continues on his way. He never, he didn't change his mind or anything. He was always going to go to Alaska um, and he was just passing through. But we see, you know, Alexandra having to give up on her love interest um, because she really can't commit to him because of her obligations to the farm. And so that's what we got. That's that's the first two parts. It's It's not quite 100 pages, as I said. It's in the Library of America version, it's 139 to 128. And um, the rest of the book covers only 60 more pages, actually. I mean, the whole book is incredibly short. I, maybe I should have done this in one episode, but nope, I'm going to... I'll finish up uh, Old Pioneers in the in the next episode. Uh, so thanks for, for listening. If you have any thoughts about Old Pioneers... Uh, please leave them below um, or wait till my next episode and maybe um, when I give my kind of full reflection on Old Pioneers, uh, then you can do that. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I probably missed a lot and I'm skipping a lot. And, and if you have any, especially historical context you want to add to the story, I would love, very much love to hear from you what you have to say about that. So with that, I'm going to go. I'll be back next time with my finale, part two of my comments on on old pioneers. So as always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.